Our text this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Let's start in verse 13 and read to 25 for the context. And let's recognize before we read that this is the word of the Lord, and let's ask for His help. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again recognizing that you are our God. You are our great shepherd. It is your Holy Spirit. He teaches us and leads us into all truth. And so we ask this morning, lead us in your way. Point us to your Son and to your glory and to the truth of your redemption that you have prepared for all of us in Christ. Thank you for this family of God of of which each of us plays a part. You being the head, you are Lord and Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together in Romans 7. A couple of weeks ago, we had um, our Resurrection Sunday, which was wonderful. And then last week, we had a special missionary uh, Sunday, and our brother from India Uh, ministered to us. What a blessing that was. And may I just say that uh, he was um, so appreciative of the warm welcome that he received here at Creekside. Um, Each of you blessed him. Um, And uh, and we had an opportunity to bless him as well, which is really wonderful. Um, In fact, uh, the mic sets that we use, uh, the wireless mic sets, he so liked it that he asked if we had an extra or if we had one. And and uh, we gave him one, and that, that was a blessing from the church for him. And so um, uh, our prayer is that he will be able to minister the gospel where he is, um, and this is just a tool. It's, it's one of many tools that the Lord is using in his ministry to uh, proclaim the good news of Christ to the nations. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, this morning we're looking at Romans chapter 7, verses uh, 15 through 20, as I said, and this is a context that we have to understand when we come to it. Uh, it's, it's hard to just jump in and out of passages within Romans chapter 7. So let's just do a, a quick recap of where we've been so far in Romans 7. Romans 7 is really divided in, in terms of headings, in three major headings. The first heading in verses 1 to 6 is the Christian's relationship to the law. What is our relationship to the law? Now that we have come to Christ in faith by God's good grace alone, each of us who have trusted in Christ, what is our relationship to the law? And the answer that Paul gives is that the law no longer condemns us. It condemned us previously because of our sin. 
But the fact that Christ took all all of our sin on the cross and paid it in full means that the law can no longer raise a charge against us. It, It can no longer condemn us or convict us of wrongdoing because Christ has paid it all for those who trust in him. That is good news. That's the gospel. In verse um, 4 of chapter 7, Paul is looking back and he says, My brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. I want you to understand what has happened to you. Something mysterious, something spiritual, something supernatural has happened to all of you who trust in Christ. And it's this. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, when Christ died at the cross, in the mind of God, all of his people, all those for whom Christ came to lay down his life and to forgive their sins, that group, those who have been loved by the Father, the love gift from the Father to the Son, they died with Christ at that cross. They were crucified with him. They now are risen, raised to newness of life with Christ That's the reason we believe. We've been spiritually raised to life with Christ. In space and in time, each one of us have a testimony, has a testimony of coming to Christ and believing this message and and now following him in truth. So we were dead, but we are now alive. And the way he puts it in chapter 7 is we were married to another. We were really married to our sin. But when we were crucified with Christ, we've now been married, remarried, to the risen Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who cannot die. And because we are in union with the ever-living one, the Holy One, we are able to bear fruit to God in our union with Him. So the law cannot condemn us anymore. That's the first big point. The second is verses 7 to 12 as a second heading. What the law has power to do. And we, we saw over several sessions, I believe, together that The law has power to show us our sin. It has power to um, stir up sin to our conscience, to make us aware of how really sinful we are. Not just that we're sinners, but that we are exceedingly sinful, as Paul says it in verse 13. The third heading is what the law has no power to do. So the law can't condemn us. It has power, a good power, to show us our sin and our need of salvation. But what it can't do is save us. It cannot save us. In fact, the more we look at the law, the more sinful we feel. So this morning, we are going to pick up at verse, really, I want to pick up at verse 14, a little bit of overlap from last time, but I think it'll be helpful in getting into verse 15 and following. Paul says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. We know that the law is spiritual. His big point is the problem is not the law. The problem is me. The reason I sin is me. It's not the law. The law stirs up sin. It exposes. It's like a flashlight that shines light on what's already there. But the law itself is not the source of my sin. I'm the source of my sin. The law is spiritual. And we saw last time that that means several things. It means that the law, the very word of God, comes from God. That's why it's a good law. That's why it's spiritual. That's why it's holy and just because it is a direct reflection of the character of God himself. It is good. It comes from the spiritual realm, from heaven, not from earth. Paul knew something of that. The Jews all knew something of the spiritual nature of the law because that was the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does the Lord require in terms of obedience in the law or to the law? Is it not that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength? This obedience to the law involves love. It involves a heart. It involves a spirit of obedience toward God, not just obedience in the letter, an outward, external, empty obedience. David in Psalm 51 verse 8 said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. That's where the law must be fulfilled. It requires a heart for God. The law is spiritual. The Jews knew this. 
But Paul, in his testimony to us at Romans 7, says, I did not know that until the law came in power to me. I didn't realize that I was spiritually dead, that I was breaking the law constantly because I was coveting in my spirit, not the external action, but my heart was corrupt with evil desire. He says in verse 8, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment, setting up its base of operation in the commandment or leveraging God's good commandment, his law, produced in me, it worked out in me all manner of evil desire. That was his condition pre-Christ. He was a machine churning out sin, sinful desire. That's where it was originating, in the heart. And he only came to see that when the law came to him in power. The law made sin abound to Paul. So here's the new realization. He thought he was spiritual, but now he comes to realize that he's actually carnal. And he goes so far as to say, carnal sold under sin. Carnal meaning fleshly or of flesh. It's a term that refers to that which is earthbound, that which is mortal, that which has been corrupted by sin. In Scripture, it refers to the things of men as opposed to the things of God. That's what carnal is. Everything to do with this body, not just our physical bodies, but our faculties, which means our powers of thinking, our emotions, and our wills. All of that is the body, the, this body that is carnal. And he says, sold under sin. That's a term, as I mentioned last time, that refers directly to slavery. It's a slavery to sin. Sold. He actually uses the perfect tense, which describes an action completed once in the past that has continuing effects. In other words, Paul is saying, and he uses the passive voice here. He doesn't say, I sold myself, but I am sold under sin. He was sold under sin. In other words, he was sold into a condition that will remain forever. This is a condition that remains for Paul. This is what he's saying. Now, some will look at a text like that and they say, Paul cannot be describing a saved person for that simple reason. Because how can a regenerate person be sold under sin? Be a slave to sin, especially in the light of everything we learned in chapter 6 where he took great pains to say, we're freed from sin. Freed from the power of sin. It no longer reigns over us. It's no longer master over us. We don't need to yield to it anymore. So you can understand. That's why some people hold this view that Paul, in describing verses 14, whoever this man is and following, cannot be talking about a regenerate person. Another view is, well, Paul seems to be describing a saved person because he talks about desire. And unregenerate people don't have good desires, desires to obey God the way this man does. But he must be a spiritually weak person. Um, he needs a second experience of grace. Perhaps he hasn't received the Holy Spirit yet, and that's really what's missing here. That's another view of this understanding of this person in verses 14 and following. And then there's a third view, and I shared with you that this is the view that I hold myself. Paul is describing himself as a mature Christian. And you say, how can that be? Well, today I want to flesh that out with you and show you from this text. We have to remember that we have three enemies in Scripture, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the greatest enemy, arguably, of those three is the flesh. The greatest enemy that we have is within. We heard about that this morning in the dark guest that Pastor Stan read from Valley of Vision. Why? Because... These other enemies, which are powerful, the world, the devil, very powerful, they all work in tandem with this native enemy that we have within. And so what we have, really, in point of fact, when someone is converted, is we have a war that begins within first. Not without primarily, not outside, but inside of each of us. There is a war that rages within 
And that is what Paul is describing in these verses from 14 to 25. It's a war that takes place in the flesh, between the flesh and between the mind of the new man, which is what I hope to show you. And Paul is going to give several evidences in this passage that he is engaged in a war within himself. I want to look at the first three of those with you this morning. The first is this, new desires. New desires is the first evidence of a war within. That's verse 15. The second is a confession of truth. Confession of truth, that's verse 16. And then thirdly, a knowledge, a right knowledge of two identities within one person, within each of us. That's verses 17 through 20. So that'll be our outline for today. Let's look at the first point together. What's the first evidence of the war within? New desires. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. So again, every time a sentence begins with the word for, Paul is going to explain what came immediately prior. And what came prior in verse 14 was, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul is going to exposit for us just how exceedingly sinful sin is in him. That he is sold under sin, that he is carnal. Paul, what does that mean? Well, here's the first thing. What I am doing, I do not understand. Okay, we've got to look at a couple of these words because they're important for our overall understanding. This word that he uses in verse 15 for doing, what I am doing, is the Greek word katergazome. It means to work out completely, to the finish. It's the same word, in fact, that Paul used in verse 8 when he said, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced, katergazome, same word, in me, in other words, worked out in me to the complete, all manner of evil desire. That's the same word that he uses here in verse 15. And this, as I was studying and preparing for this week, that word really popped out at me as a thread throughout this text. And I I don't think it's an accident that Paul uses that word again and again and again. I think he uses it to flag us to a, a key truth about sin. He uses this word 21 times in his epistles, Paul does. 11 times in Romans Six times in this chapter alone, in Romans chapter 7. Most of the time it's used negatively, working out to the completion. And what is he doing? What is he working out to completion? Well, just like we saw in verse 8, I don't think it's an accident that he's using the same word here when he says, I am doing, I am working out. What is, that? What is this thing he's working out? Sin. Sin, as a carnal person sold under sin, he's working out sin. And he says, what I'm working out, I don't understand. Now, that's not the best translation for that word. That word is also translated approve or allow. That's a better translation. I think that's really the sense of what he's getting at here. What I'm doing, what I'm working out, the sin that I'm doing, I don't approve of. I don't allow For what I will to do, what I want to do, that I don't practice. What is it that Paul wants to do? Well, if you look at verse 19 and verse 21, he wants to do good. Look at verse 19. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. Look at verse 21. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. And what is it that Paul defined as good, preeminently good, before he started this section? The law. The law is what's good. In fact, he says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So, Paul wants to do what is good. He wants to obey the law of God. And he hates what he's doing, the working out of sin. What is Paul describing here? This is nothing other than desire. This is affection he's talking about. What I hear him saying in this text is, what I want to do, 
what I don't approve of, and what I hate. What is that? That's the mind, that's the emotion, and that's the will all engaged. That's the faculties. Another way of saying that is that's the heart of Paul speaking. Let me ask you this. Who is this person speaking in verse 15? Is it an unregenerate man or a regenerate man? What do we know from Scripture about desire, about affections, and specifically the affections of God's people toward righteousness and toward sin? Listen to Psalm 97, verse 10. This was our corporate reading this morning. This one simple phrase, but so powerful. You who love the Lord hate evil. If you love God, hate evil. Hate sin. You must. You will. Psalm 119, verse 104. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. A hatred of evil. Psalm 119, verse 128, Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right, I hate every false way. All your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. He loves what God loves, but he hates what God hates. Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, the Lord says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, I'm sorry, the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Same idea. Hate evil and love what is good. And then Paul, in Romans, coming up in Romans chapter 12, he's going to say the same idea. He says in Romans 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil. That means hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. Hold on to it for dear life. You see, Christians hate evil. And why? Because their father, the Lord, hates evil. In Proverbs 8, we have... Wisdom personified as a person, speaking wisdom. She speaks to God's people, but it's really the voice of the Lord speaking to his people. He says this in Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. He is directly opposed to all evil, and he hates those who hate, who love evil. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, this is what the Lord says to the Son, the ever-living and blessed Son of God. Listen to this, and this is quoting Psalm 45. He says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You see, our love for what is right and our hatred for what is wrong, for what is evil, comes from, originates in God, our Father. The Son of God demonstrates this Himself. He loves what is right and He hates what is evil. And God showers Him with blessing because He is approved by God. He is God. And He loves what God loves. So when Paul says, What I will to do, that I don't practice, but what I hate, that I do, that phrase is so significant, loved ones, because he's talking about a change of heart that has occurred within himself. Look back at chapter 7, verse 8 again. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced, worked out in me all manner of evil, what? Desire. Desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Until the law came to him in power, his sin wasn't stirred up. But sin stirred up produces all manner of evil desire. That's the affections. That's the heart we're talking about. Paul's saying that was the case in the past. It used to produce all manner of evil desire in me. But what's his desire now? He's saying, I have good desires. I I love what God loves. I don't love evil anymore. 
That was me before I came to Christ. His desires have changed. This is a stark contrast for Paul. And it needs to be for each of us. Look back at chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, literally weapons of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why would Paul need to instruct the Romans, the church, about not letting sin reign anymore? Precisely because they used to let sin reign. They loved to have sin reign before. So did Paul. All his evil desires were stirred up and he was given over to it. So let me ask you again in verse 15, is this an unregenerate person or a regenerate person who's speaking? In light of these new desires, this new heart that this man has. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the affections alone here tell us that this man that Paul is describing is regenerate. This is a personal testimony, a personal account from Paul the Apostle himself that he gives in the present tense. He says, this is what's true of me now as of the time of my writing. And I want you to notice this. He doesn't just hate sin in the abstract. Look what he says in verse 15. What I hate, that I do. He doesn't just approve. He doesn't approve of what he's doing. Not just in the abstract sin, but he hates sin in himself, what he's doing. This is the conflict that Paul tells us about in Galatians 5, and this was our call to worship this morning. This is a succinct statement of what we're talking about this morning, this warfare, this war within. Here it is, Galatians 5.17, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit. Its desire is against the Spirit of God. And the Spirit's desire is against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. He's in conflict with himself. And he's in conflict with himself because the Spirit of God has come into his heart and is at war with Paul's flesh, with his humanity, his unredeemed self corrupted by sin. Yes, Paul is carnal. He is sold under sin, but I want you to take note of this important distinction. He's not carnally minded. He says, I'm carnal, but he's not carnally minded. Look at chapter 8, verse 7, excuse me, verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity, that means hatred, against God, For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. If Paul were carnally minded, he would still be dead spiritually. He would not be alive. He would be still hostile toward God. But he's not carnally minded anymore. He has a new mind. He has new affections toward God. He loves what is good. He loves the law. He wants to keep the law. And he hates what he does, his own sin in himself. That's the carnal part that he's talking about. Not the mind, but this unredeemed humanity that still clings to him. Another question comes up as we think through this. Why doesn't Paul practice what he desires? He says, what I will to do, I don't practice. What I really want to do, I'm not practicing. The question is, why? Isn't it the case that The righteous practice righteousness? We talk about that a lot, don't we? Hold on to that question. We're going to come back to that because it does get answered as we go here. So the first evidence of the war within are these new desires. And only Christians, brothers and sisters, have these new desires. They love righteousness and they hate their own sin. That's not true of the world. The second evidence of the war within is the confession of truth. Look at verse 16, confession of truth. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. The word he uses for agree is the Greek word that means to declare together with. Another way of translating that is to consent to. 
it's really synonymous with the idea of confession, to say the same thing as. Um, what is Paul agreeing with? Well, he says that he agrees with the law, that it is good. He's siding with God, in other words, which is another evidence of a regenerate person. Only the righteous love the law of God. Remember Psalm 119, verse 128 again. Therefore, I deem all your precepts concerning everything to be right. Everything that you do is right. I hate every false way. Why would the wicked love what condemns him? It doesn't make any sense. Why would the wicked love what condemns him? The wicked hate the law. They hate the light of the truth. They do not agree with it. Paul is saying, I agree with the law that it is good, but it's the law that condemns in the flesh. It condemns us individually. Let's take Christ out of the equation for just a moment. We're condemned by the law without him. Why would anyone agree with what condemns them? The wicked certainly don't. John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus in verses 19 through 21, Jesus says this, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The only people who come to the light are those who have the deeds of God done through them. They love God because they have a new heart. They have the Spirit of God in them, producing righteousness in them, and they want more. They are the ones who come to the light. But the wicked, they hate the light. They recoil from the light because it only exposes their wickedness, and they hate that. Psalm 50, verse 16 and 17, God speaking to the wicked says this, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing that you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? That's a picture of the wicked. They don't want the Lord's instruction. They cast it behind their back. They hate it in their hearts. But the righteous agree with God. The righteous alone agree with God. Now, I think that many wicked people would say in principle that they agree with God. They would say that they believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's true. But they don't go far enough with that confession. They would not confess that they themselves are condemned. Yes, they would say that the law is good, but they would not say, and I'm condemned. But that's exactly what Paul has been saying. I mean, listen to Paul from back in chapter 3 when he says this in verse 4. And this is in the context of Jewish opponents to Paul saying, look, if, what, what about the people of Israel who do not believe this gospel? Does that mean that God is unfaithful? And Paul's answer in verse 4 of chapter 3 is certainly not. May it never be. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. And then he quotes David in Psalm 51. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. That's the call of the righteous or the cry of the righteous. God, you are right in all that you do. Abraham, will the judge of the whole world not do what is right? Of course. God, you are right and I am wrong. I'm condemned by your good law. I, I recognize that. I confess that freely. That's what Paul's saying. Or think about the thief on the cross. The one who saw the Lord Jesus and recognized him as Lord. What did he say? He, but that we are condemned justly. We, the two thieves next to Christ, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. There it is. Vindication of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a condemnation of themselves. We deserve our punishment. Christ is innocent. That 
is the attitude and heart of the righteous. Paul, David, the thief on the cross, all the righteous are brought to this place where they learn to vindicate God. Now, that's not to say that we vindicate God at every given point of our lives. We, we just went through a study of Job on Wednesday nights, and we saw that Job, under extreme pressure, began to question God. He began to accuse God in his spirit and to veer off of the course into sin. And it was the Lord who was intentionally using this trial to draw out the sin in Job's heart, to show it to him in order that he would bring Job to repentance. He showed Job his majesty. He showed him how great he was in all of creation and how the greatest creatures on earth no man could tame, how much more the God of those creatures? No one can contend with God rightly. He is Lord of all. The mountains melt like wax in front of him. We read that in Psalm 97. But the point is that God's people repent. He brought Job to a point of repentance. We, brothers and sisters, we are brought to a point of repentance, of seeing this truth. God, everything you do is right. I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. Forgive me. So the second evidence of this war within is a confession of truth. It's a confession and agreeing with God what you say is right. And I'm going farther than that. I'm actually going to take sides with God in opposition to myself. I'm, going to, I'm willing to condemn myself. That's true evidence of the war within. The third evidence is this. Knowledge of two identities within each of us. Right knowledge of two identities within each of us. Look what he says in verse 17. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. But now is literally at this very moment. Paul is speaking of the present experience he has as an apostle. This is as a mature Christian. But now, right now, it is no longer I who same word again, who work it out, who is working out the sin, but it's sin that dwells in me. That's the word for house. It's taken up residence in me. So he's now starting to pinpoint the location of this sin, this thing that is working out in him. You might read this, and some have read this verse, and they've said, Why is Paul doing this? It seems like he's creating an arbitrary separation between himself and his sin so as not to be responsible for his sin. I mean, how easy is it to say, I'm not the one who's sinning, it's sin doing it. And therefore, I'm just going to keep sinning. You see, that was the error of the Gnostics. That was the Greek dualism idea that became Gnosticism in the first century. And it was this. Spirit is good. Flesh and material things are evil. Where I sin is in my flesh. But their error was, so I'm just going to keep sinning as much as I want because that's not me. Whereas Paul and the Christian view is, no, I'm carnal, sold under sin. You see what he's doing? He's claiming responsibility for his own sin. That's right. That's unique to the Christian view. He does that in verse 14. I am carnal, sold under sin. He does that in verse 15, 16, 18, 19, 20, where he says, I do, I do, I do. I'm the one doing this. So he's claiming responsibility for his sin, but he's simply saying this truth I'm not the one sinning anymore ultimately. It's not me. It is sin that's housed in me. It's that dark guest that's in Paul and in you and me. Sin in him is the agent responsible, although he takes responsibility for it, but in terms of where it's rooted, he says it's not me. It's no longer me. Now, brothers and sisters, this may sound incredible to some of you, but I think this is exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, 
I am not able to sin anymore. When he says in 7.17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, he's saying I can't sin anymore. I'm not able to. Really? The new man cannot sin. That is a truth that is astounding, but nonetheless it is true. I want you to listen to a couple of texts with me because this idea is very, very important to understand our constitution, how we are made up as Christian people. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, turn there with me if you would, Ephesians 4. And let's look starting in verse 20. Ephesians 4 verse 20 But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. How do you know that you are a Christian and know Christ and have been taught by him? Now, my text says that you put off, but the correct understanding throughout these texts is actually that you have put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which is corrupted according to the deceitful lusts and are renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you have put on the new man which was created according to God in, notice this, true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is saying this person that you are is one who is new in Christ who is renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the truth of the matter is you were created by God. The true you was created in true righteousness and holiness. That means sinless. The true you, who you really are in Christ, is sinless. Let's hear this from 1 John. John's testimony on the same thing. 1 John chapter 3. Look at 1 John 3, verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. Whose seed is that? The seed of God. And he cannot sin. In the Greek, it's literally he has no power to sin. Dynamite is the word for power used there. He has no ability, no power to sin because he has been born of God. He cannot continue in a state of sin because God's seed remains in him. God's seed which is holy. God's seed which is incorruptible, undefiled. That's the seed that begot you, that caused you to be born again by the word of his truth. And because of that, because the incorruptible is in you, the new you is incorruptible too. Wow. You say, how does that square with 1 John chapter 1, verse 8? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That seems like it might contradict. If we say we have no sin, but what's the key? If we have no sin. He doesn't say if you don't sin. He says if we say we have no sin. Why? Because there's an understanding of our constitution that John, Paul, the redeemed have, which is this. We are new in Christ, and that new self is not capable of sin. It's pure. It's undefiled. It's holy. It's the seed of God that is in union with you, or has, which has begotten you. It's the flesh where the sin dwells. And that flesh is what produces the sin. So the sin is with us. We have the sin, but it's not who we are fundamentally. That's not our nature. That's not our character anymore. We are not in the flesh, but the flesh is still in us. Our new nature is not defined as the flesh anymore like it was pre-Christ. We now have the seed of God abiding in us. And we have this flesh and Paul says in Romans 6, that flesh, that body of sin has been greatly deprived of its power. It's still there. It's a factor. It's a force. But it's greatly weakened 
by the Spirit of God who has come into your heart and who dwells in you with great power. That's why you don't have to sin anymore. So this is the model. We have two identities. We have unredeemed humanity and we have a new humanity. We have Christ in us and we also have the old Adam in us. This is another kind of astounding truth. We, have, we are the products of both our first birth and our second birth. We have Adam's birth still in us. We're no longer sons of Adam because we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Christ is now our new federal head. He represents us. But we still have vestiges of that remnants of that old first birth that still dwells in us. And that's the sin factory. That's what's given over to sin. But the greater man that's in you is Christ through his spirit. And he's the one who now dominates all of God's people as we walk in him, as we set our minds on him. I want to show you this model also from a model of the new man, these two identities in one from Ezekiel's perspective in Ezekiel 36. Take a look at this with me just briefly. Ezekiel 36 This is the promise of the new covenant given in the Old Testament in Ezekiel's day. And this is God's promise starting in verse 24. And this is not just to ethnic Israel. This is to all the Israel of God. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are true sons of Abraham. For I will take you, Ezekiel 36, 24, from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. What's that? That's a picture of justification. Cleansed from our sins. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Question. Where does this heart of flesh go that God gives us? Back into our flesh. He takes out the heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. So the new heart, the new desires, this new nature that we have is in our flesh The two are there, but the flesh doesn't dominate anymore. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. There's the power. I'm going to give you a new heart so you want to walk in my way, so that you love my good law, and I'm going to give you the very power to walk in that new way. I'm going to guarantee it. This is the power of the new covenant. God in his people accomplishing what God alone what he requires and what he alone can do. Come back with me to Romans chapter 7. Actually, let's look at Romans chapter 8 now, just a little bit ahead of where we are, because we have the same model in different places in Scripture. We, we've heard about it from John in 1 John 3. We hear about it from Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. We hear about it from Paul in Romans 8. Take a look at verse 10. Romans 8 verse 10. He says, And if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So here's another picture of this model. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. That doesn't mean that the body is inactive. That means that the body is spiritually dead. The body is under a sentence of death. Your physical body and all its faculties are going to die one day. That's the curse that God has placed on humanity because of sin, ever since the garden. And that curse remains throughout our lives until we are raised from the dead. But if Christ is in you, the Spirit, now my Bible capitalizes that S as in the Holy Spirit. I think it's actually meant in the lower case S Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of the individual, though his body is spiritually dead, his Spirit is alive because of the righteousness of Christ that is given him. The righteousness of Christ, which cleanses him from his sin. And his sin is what results in his death. 
So he takes away the factor that leads to his death spiritually. He raises him to life, and now Christ is in this new body, even though it's a a spiritually dead body. So you can see the two things that are there, the two identities. I have this body of sin, or what Paul calls the body of death. It hangs to me. It clings to me. I hate it. I hate everything it does. But that's not who I really am. I'm no longer that person is what Paul says. And what does that imply? That he was that person. He was totally given to that. He loved his sin. But now something has changed. Paul has a new heart that he's expressing to us. And that's the heart of all the true believers. We love righteousness and we hate our own sin. Verse 18, let's keep going with this. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells, for the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Paul says, I I know or I perceive that in me, and now he had done this in 17, he had identified or started to identify that it's the sin that is housed within him, that dwells within him, that's causing him to work out sin. But here he pinpoints the location of this sin machine, and he clarifies 17. He says, not just in me, but that is in my flesh. That's the location where nothing good dwells. If Paul had said, in me alone, it could be either one of those identities. Uh, You could understand it either way. But he's saying, no, no, it's not in the true Paul, not the real me. It's in my flesh. It's in that cursed thing that still hangs to me. This is the lament of David in Psalm 51 where he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Even from the time before I was born, when I was in my mother's womb, I was tainted by sin. I was totally corrupted. For the will is present with me. He says, the willing, literally in the Greek, the desire, that's the heart, is present. It's at hand. It lies near to me. Where did that willingness to do right come from? Again, it comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Galatians 5.17, the Spirit has set its desire against the flesh, and the flesh, conversely, against the Spirit. No one who has a desire to do God's will, to do what is right, to obey His law, has that in and of themselves. That is given to them. That's a product of the Spirit of God in them. This is salvation, brothers and sisters. This is what it means. It's not just that we're forgiven, washed clean, but that we are transformed. God doesn't leave us to to go our own way after pardoning us at the bench, so to speak, of law. But he brings us into his family. He brings us into the closest possible relationship with himself. He adopts us as his sons. He begets us as children. He weds us as his wife. This is true salvation. God is changing our desire and our ability, as we just saw in Ezekiel 36, through His Spirit to obey Him, to love Him. Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives this sentiment as well about where this willingness to obey comes from. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's the human responsibility. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. If you desire to do God's will, that's a work of God the Spirit in your heart. Praise the Lord. He's the one who's working out in you that desire for good. No longer a desire for evil. That is now repugnant. That's now odious to you. You hate that. But what is good is what we delight in, the law of God. Now, what was really fascinating to me again on this theme of that word that's threaded throughout this passage is that word to perform or to do here in verse um, 18, how to perform what is good, I do not find. It's the same word, katergazume. How to work out to completion what is good I do not find. So here's the question that I asked myself, and you may be asking yourself as you look at this text. 
Is Paul saying here that he can't identify the power to do any good? Or is he saying that he doesn't find the ability to obey the law completely 100% because of his flesh? See, he uses the word which means to carry out to completion. How to completely do what I what is good, which is the law, obeying the law, I don't find. That's not in me. I think that's exactly what he's saying. I, in fact, I think both are true to some extent, but I think the second is really the, the truth. Yes, if you look at yourself, or if Paul's looking at his flesh, he, there's no power there to deal with this sin. If you look at the law, it just makes you realize how sinful you are. So I think that's right. There's no power in looking at self. The power comes in looking at the cross. But second, and really the point is this, he wants to obey the law perfectly. He has a heart for God and he wants to obey the law 100%. That's what he says he doesn't find. He can't do. He can't do what he really wants, which is to obey the, the law every time. That tells us something interesting. There's no such thing as perfectionism in this life. There have been segments of Christianity throughout the years, really, I would say, identified primarily with the Wesley brothers, but probably others as well, that believe we can reach a state of sinless perfectionism in this life. This doctrine is antithetical to that. It says no. No, we cannot reach a state of perfectionism in this life. Why? Because... I can't perfectly do what I want to do. I've got this flesh that's anchored to me that is continually producing sin. Um, Paul says the same thing in Philippians 3. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I've not already attained. Paul, the mature apostle, had not attained when he wrote this. And he wouldn't until he would be glorified. None of us do. None of us does either. This conflict remains, brothers and sisters, and that might sound a little bit morose. But there's some great encouragement that I want to share with you in just a moment about this. So stay with me. He doesn't just want to practice acts of righteousness. Paul, if this is in fact a mature Christian man who is being described in this passage in Romans 7, Paul has the Holy Spirit of God. He has that power source to obey, doesn't he? So it's not that he's not able to obey, it's that he's not able to obey perfectly as he wants to in his heart. That's really the cry that I see here. And that's the the cry of a mature Christian believer. This is something I think that everyone is brought to. You could say that this account is an account of Paul's conversion. When his sin was first exposed, he saw his great need. He cried out to the Lord, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it's the same cry that the mature believer has. In fact, we continue to have this pattern play out again and again and again in our daily lives just with more intensity as we grow in Christ. So that the mature apostle can say, I I see myself as the chief of sinners. Who will deliver me from this body of death? For the good that I will to do, I do not do. Verse 19. What's the good he wants to do? Well, clearly it's, it's complete obedience, 100%. But the evil that I don't want to do, that I practice. So here we go. The new man is only able to practice righteousness. He cannot sin. He's incorruptible because of the seed of God that remains in him. The old man, the flesh, can only practice sin. It can only sin. Now, if I do, verse 20, what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So this is a, it sounds familiar because he already said this in verse 17. He's reaffirming this truth. This is not me. I used to be this person, but it is no longer me. And he says, I no longer do it. I no longer work it out. Same word again, the sixth time. And here's what I thought was such an interesting learning here relating to these identities and to our correct understanding of who we are in Christ with vestiges of the first birth 
mixed in with the second birth. This interesting learning is this. Paul is saying, I know who I really am because of my desires. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's not I who am doing it. That's the qualifier for who he really is, is his desires. That's what he's equating. He's saying, this isn't me anymore. How do I know? Because I don't want to sin. That's not who I am. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know who the real you is? Examine your heart. What are your desires? What is it that you love? You can evaluate that this way. What do you spend your money on? What do you spend your time on? When you have, quote-unquote, free time, which many of you maybe don't, if you had free time, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted to do? That tells you a lot about where your heart is, where your desires are. See, it's not your deeds that determine who you are. Hear me out on this. It's not your deeds that determine who you are, but your desires that determines who you are. That tells you who, what your real nature is. Unregenerate people can do, quote-unquote, good deeds, can't they? Um, but that's not who they really are, really good. This is when Christ said, you're like, to the Pharisees, you're like cups that are clean on the outside. You look good on the outside, or you're like a whitewashed tomb. Look good on the outside, but on the inside you're filthy. You're full of dead men's bones. No, it's not the deeds that ultimately determine who you are, but your desires. Unregenerate people can, can do these good deeds, but that's not who they really are. And then conversely, regenerate people can sin, can't they? We sin all the time. But is that our identity? Is that who we are? No, we, we repent. That's the point. Christians repent. There's no such thing as a person who has good, godly desires and no evidence of fruit in their life. They will. You must. Christians hate their sin and they love righteousness. Christians are the only ones who are concerned about the state of their souls. They're the ones who lack assurance because they see their sin so much and it concerns them. And they say, I don't think I've ever been born again. Look at all the sin in my life. It is to you that I want to offer some words of encouragement as we kind of work through this section because we're not really to the climax yet. The climax comes in verse 24 where he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what is the answer? Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord! Exclamation point. What's the answer, brothers and sisters, for deliverance? Uh, for this salvation that we so long for because we see our sins so clearly and we're seeing it more clearly over time. It's not to look at the law. The law cannot save you. It's got a limitation. It can lead you to see your sinfulness, which is good. That's its goodness. But it can't save you if you look at it alone. Where do we have to look? To Christ. We have to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith as the one who sets us free from this law of sin and death. Why? Because he kept the law for me. My flesh was weak, unable to keep the law as God required. Jesus kept the law in the flesh perfectly, though he was sinless. Perfectly. He condemned sin in his own flesh for me and for you and for all who trust in him. That's where we have to go with this. That's where Paul is going with this. He's saying, look, the law has a limitation it can bring us to Christ, but we have to look at Christ to see our salvation. If you're depressed because you look at your sinfulness, look at Christ. Don't look at yourself so much. Look to Him. So, that's the first encouragement is this turns us to Christ. We are looking to Him for our deliverance. And that's a deliverance which means deliverance in every respect of salvation. Deliverance in our justification He's cleansed us, deliver us, deliverance in our sanctification, that he is cleansing us now and making us holy in practice. Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 8, the first half of chapter 8. Here's your deliverance now with Christ in you, the power of his resurrection in you at work to live a holy life. That's your deliverance in this life. And then there's a deliverance, a final deliverance, which is yet to come, which is your glorification. And that comes 
when he makes your body new. This corrupted body that's condemned to die is going to be raised from the dust and made like his glorious body forever, incapable of death. Then you'll be saved completely, spirit and body forever. So who's going to deliver us? Christ. Keep your eyes there. He's doing it now. He's going to do it at the end. Recognize his work. Here's the second thing I want to encourage you with. Do you know something of this war within that we've been talking about this morning? Do you know something of new desires in your heart where you love righteousness and you hate your own sin? Can you make a confession of truth and side with God and with his law and say, he is right and his law is pure and good. I'm the one who is condemned and corrupted. And apart from Christ, I'm hopeless. Can you make that confession? And do you recognize that you are now the product of two births? You have the old Adamic uh, flesh that still hangs, but is greatly deprived of its power. And the new man, Christ, is driving, is in control, is leading. Can you confess that truth? And if you can, in a wonderful, indirect way, this war evidences that you are saved. The unbeliever does not know anything about this war within. He has personal conflict of a different kind. But fundamentally, he loves his sin, he hates righteousness, and he's in league with the devil and with his flesh and with this world. We are not. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. The things of this earth are growing strangely dim to our eyes as we see our sin and then we look to Christ. Amen? That's right. This, loved ones, is a description of the new man, no doubt. This is Paul's conversion experience. This is his mature Christian experience. This is our experience. Our hope is in the Lord. Yes, we struggle. We will struggle to the end. But don't forget this. He is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And his promise is that he's going to make you like himself. Put your trust and confidence in him. Keep your eyes on him. And he will lead you home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for... um, just the realism that it provides. Father, thank you for showing us the heart of the Apostle Paul and really by virtue of him, our hearts, who are in Christ. We know that we are carnal. We have this flesh that is sold under sin and, Lord, will always be. But praise the Lord. You have redeemed us. You've given us a new spirit. You have put a new heart in our flesh a heart that beats for you with a new mind that can think your thoughts, the thoughts of Christ, the mind of Christ, a new emotion, a new affection for what is good and what is right and against what is evil, and a new will, a new desire to do what is right. And thank you, Lord, that those desires are what's trumping those old desires which have been weakened through the crucifixion with Christ. Thank you, Lord, Thank you that you are showing us that you are redeeming us now. That you are at work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And one day we will be totally glorified and perfected in you. What a glorious truth. May we keep our eyes on that. Thank you, Lord, for doing this for unworthy sinners such as we. Thank you that you call us saints. Thank you that you have wedded us to yourself and that you love us with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name, amen.